Good evening. Happy Wednesday to everybody. If you're online, good to have you joining us. Uh, those of you that are watching the streaming tonight, uh, I'm sure we have some. I know people have some sickness and illness going around, and some are out of town, so glad to have you as well. As we continue tonight in uh, the study of Joel, I uh, wanted to, before we get into the Word, wanted to pray on two different things. Uh, number one, uh, Zach uh, headed back to India today, right Lee? So he headed back today, uh, land track and then, and then plane, planes, trains and automobiles for him, uh, all the above. And so, so he headed back um, to India and he'll be back uh, about a month from now in November. And so be praying for Lee. Uh, she's got to watch three boys by herself. That would be hard with both parents. Uh, I have girls. I think boys are harder. And I have a lot of nephews, and I just come to realize that uh, it's a different ball game. And, and I'm glad didn't got, God didn't put me in that ball game. Uh, he put other people in that ball game. So uh, I got a lot of sheep to take care of in, in the church, but not boys. So. Um, so be praying for Zach, and we're looking forward to having him back, and obviously in the new year, he's going to be coming on staff. And I also wanted to pray uh, as we kind of get into uh, the book of Joel tonight, which uh, centers on the nation of Israel. I want to pray for Israel tonight. Uh, so if we can take just a couple of moments, I want to pray for Zach. Uh, is he in the air now uh, or, or soon? Later. Okay, so he, he's milling around the airport and... Uh, looking at magazines and uh, trying to occupy his time there until he gets on his flight. But uh, I want to pray for him. I want to pray for the nation of Israel. Um, you know, you know what's going on. Uh, it's taking place there, and and uh, it's a powder keg in the Middle East. All of this could uh, unravel quickly. It could it could stay the way it is. It could get way better. It could get way worse. Uh, but we know that all these things are leading up to. Um, uh, the final fulfillment of things, and we'll look at some of those things even tonight as we look in Joel chapter 2. So why don't you bow with me as we pray. Lord, we lift up our brother Zach. We're so thankful, Lord, uh, for uh, the work that him and Lee have done uh, for the past decade plus uh, in India, and Lord, all the seeds that have been sown, and the team that is there, and I pray that he's there. Uh, Lord, I just pray even tonight, just get him safely there without any complications, give him rest uh, all the way to India. Uh, help him to be built up. Help him by your spirit to build up the team that is there. Those that are, uh, Lord, uh, manning the ship, as it were, there in India. And uh, as the work continues to go on, we pray that there would be many new souls come to Christ. Lord, they've been uh, such faithful servants in ministering to the Muslim community there. And we know that you love the Muslim people. And so we pray that many in India and, and around the Muslim world will come to you. And, and Lord, we also think of the nation of Israel, Lord. You planted Abraham and the, uh, the patriarchs in that land. You gave it uh, to Moses and to Joshua and, Lord, uh, to the kings. And, Lord, uh, 1948, you put them back in the land. And, Lord, uh, we know that Satan hates the Jewish people. He hates the nation of Israel uh, because, Lord, he hates that the Messiah has come from the Jewish people and has come from the tribe of Judah. And, Lord, we know that he hates uh, anything, Lord, that uh, you are doing uh, in the world to bring people to yourself. And Lord, uh, so we just pray that, that you would bring uh, peace to Jerusalem. We pray for the safety uh, of those that, Lord, are um, in the armed services there in the IDF, those in the northern border, those particularly down near Gaza. We pray for the safety of the cities. We pray, Lord, that uh, you'd bring an end to the violence. We pray that those that are guilty would repent, but also they'd be brought to justice. Uh, and Lord, we just ask that uh, you would intervene uh, as only you can, and Lord, all these things would be uh, part of your plan uh, to bring about the return of Messiah. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may turn with me, if you can, to Joel chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you, Joel chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, we finished the first chapter last week. By the way, I had this pop into my head today about Israel, because there's a lot of confusion in the world. I don't know if you've seen uh, people protesting on both sides, even Jewish people protesting against Israel, uh, obviously Palestinians that are protesting, and 
uh, and all kinds of college kids who probably don't know their right hand from their left hand, uh, and they're, they're involved, and they don't know what they're involved in, but, uh, but they, they have an opinion, but they don't really have an informed opinion about uh, these things. But, um, you know, about Israel, uh, is Israel a nation, or is it the Jewish people? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer. Yes. And that really confuses people. Is it a nation, or is it the Jewish people? Yes. It's both. And, and I can show you in the scriptures uh, how it's both. And so uh, Paul even says, all Israel be, be saved. You know, he's not just talking about the nation. He's talking about the Jewish people that are spread all over the world that are going to be brought back. And so uh, just something to know when you're talking to people. They're, they're very confused about which is which. And that's why you have anti-Semitism and all these other things. But uh, one of our congresswomen said that today, Israel today, is not the same nation as the nation in the Bible. And that's only half right. Uh, Israel's had many iterations, but it's absolutely the same people, and God made the people into a nation. So, uh, and how it all fits together, you know, maybe even uh, some of what we look at in the book of Joel touches on some of these things, and, and certainly we've touched on some of these things in other prophecy series too. But, but to our text tonight, we finished chapter one last Wednesday in our starting uh, this series, so pick it up with me at verse one. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor Will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations? A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, uh, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for your blessing on this time in your word. We ask, Lord, that uh, it would minister what you intend it to. I pray, Lord, that I would have your anointing, your help, your strength, your wisdom, your understanding. Lord, all of us, as Scott already prayed, you remove every distraction, trample the enemy underfoot, and, Lord, that we might be Lord, just built up and edified and strengthened by your word, encouraged by your word. And Lord, even given joy in a time where there is much fear and trepidation and confusion and angst, Lord, that we would have joy because we know the Lord is our strength and you are in control of all things. And we pray that you'd minister through Joel chapter 2 tonight by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In chapter 1, the prophet Joel had been sent by God to speak to Israel regarding a massive and uh, catastrophic plague of locusts that had come upon the land and had devoured and stripped the land completely bare of all the vegetation, all the fruits, all the plants, all the crops. And then drought and famine had set in after the locusts had left. And the prophet's task as you recall from last Wednesday, was to provide insight, commentary from the Lord, and a plea for the nation to cry out to the Lord, and for the elders and the priests to gather the people together, to fast, to, well, that was going to be easier because food was at a premium at that point, but to fast and to pray and to mourn before the Lord. The people as you recall, they were stunned, they were sad, they were scared, and they would soon be starving unless God intervened. But the Lord's desire was not for their destruction, but their renewed devotion, their dedication to the Lord. That's what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to be devoted to Him. He's devoted to us. He wants us to be devoted to Him. And as chapter 2 opens, on the heels of the swarm of locusts that was likened to an army, another army, not an army of locusts, and it was also potentially alluded to back 
in chapter 1, verse 6. But yet another army is coming. And the prophet Joel gives an ominous warning of their invasion, the likes of which Judah and Israel had never seen. But the heart of God remains. The news of this impending catastrophe and judgment is to turn the people's heart, to turn their hearts to himself, not to turn them to ashes, to turn them to himself. But there was no time to wait. You see my little graphic of the hourglass there. I, I remind myself from time to time, sand only goes one way to the hourglass. Except for God can actually flip the hourglass. But it goes one way. We, we don't know how much time we have. We don't know how much time our nation has. We don't have how much time till Jesus returns. There's no time to wait. The time to turn the Lord was immediately and it's still that way today, amen? It's still, uh, even if you're saved, God wants you to turn to him immediately for whatever he is knocking on your heart about. If you're taking notes, you see the title this evening, The Day of the Lord, and a plea to return to him. We're going to get into the rest of the, not the rest of the chapter, but all the way through verse 17, you'll see where the prophet gets into this plea to repentance. But back to verse 1, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now blow the trumpet, which is to sound the alarm. You know there's trumpets all throughout the Bible, and they have different meanings. In this particular case, it's an alarm. It would be like uh, a tsunami warning uh, horn going off. It'd be something like that. It'd be like pulling a fire alarm. But the alarm goes off. It's to sound the alarm. It's to blow the trumpet. It's an urgent call to everyone to get everyone's attention. It's a call to arms throughout all of Zion. Zion is a name for Jerusalem. You might see that sometimes in the Bible. It's, it's, got, it's got a couple different uh, names and connotations. Zion is a specific name for Jerusalem. It's where Mount Zion is. It's one of the mountains there in Jerusalem. It can also correspond to the entire land of Israel. So you can say Zion, and it can refer to all of Israel, or just Jerusalem, or just Mount Sinai, or just Mount Zion. Zion was also used in the Old Testament to symbolize God's presence. So Zion can also symbolize the presence of God. And the Lord refers to Zion here. He says, my holy mountain. The city of his choosing, the place where he called Abraham was to bring Isaac right there to that same city of Jerusalem to sacrifice Isaac. Of course, we know God kept him from doing that. It was just to test his obedience. It's the place where the temple was built, and the place is, and of course, the temple has the Holy of Holies within it. But to the very city that God himself had set apart to be the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, to this very city, to this land, speaking through the prophet Joel, he says to the inhabitants, so Joel is doing the speaking, God's speaking through the prophet, but Joel says to the inhabitants of Zion, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that they should tremble because the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is on one hand, how many of you heard this term, the day of the Lord, and you've read it in the Bible and say, wow, I see it here, I see it over here, I see it here, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is on one hand, I want to be clear about this, as clear as I can be, the day of the Lord is on one hand a very specific end time fulfillment, a very specific end time fulfillment that God will bring upon the earth. And yet it is simultaneously, so it's very specific time to come at the very, very end, it's also simultaneously inclusive of various outpourings of God's judgment at other points in time, leading up to the final culmination of the day of the Lord's coming wrath and judgment. Does that make sense? So there is a very specific day of the Lord, 
But many points that kind of correspond are part of the day of the Lord because God doesn't look at time the same way we do. He sees it as a map, and he also has a specific point in time. And the final and complete fulfillment of the day of the Lord is going to dwarf all previous judgments and outpourings. That makes sense? So the final fulfillment, it's building to a crescendo. It's building, and, it's, and it kind of recircles and touches the previous as it builds to a final. Sometimes I put a slide up on that. I didn't tonight. With one exception, as far as it's building to a, play, a, a moment of judgment the world has never seen, with one exception, that would be Noah's flood. Because that also was something the world will never see again. And it was a, their bookends. Noah's flood's back here. The day of the Lord is coming. It wasn't really Noah's flood. It was God's flood. But Noah just had to survive the flood. But much like uh, the day of the Lord, what happened in Noah's day was a worldwide judgment. Every corner of the globe was judged, and the day of the Lord will judge every corner of the globe as well. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 5. Ah, you're not used to having me turn, but this night, you're the Wednesday night crowd, so you can do these things. You know, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter, not 5, chapter 3, sorry. Starting verse 5. 2 Peter 3, there is not five chapters in 2 Peter, just so you know. I was thinking of verse 5, but anyway. 2 Peter 3, verse 5, starting with verse 5. So Peter speaks about the day of the Lord, and he speaks about Noah's flood in the same passage. For this they willfully forget, in verse 5, that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water in the water by which the world at that time existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly Men, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? I'll stop right there just for time. Look at, for the believer, we can actually look forward to the day of the Lord. He said, hastening it. Interesting. Peter mentions here both the worldwide judgments, um, the flood, and then he mentions, like Joel, um, the day of the Lord. And remember, Peter also quotes from Joel, as we've talked about uh, there at Pentecost, referring to the last days. So Peter uh, has kind of some symmetry with Joel on, on a number of different things, literally quoting from Joel, and, and both of them mention the day of the Lord. And Peter says that, uh, or uh, Peter refers to this coming day of the Lord. A time when the, even the uh, elements of the earth are going to endure the wrath of God. Everything. I mean, molecules and animals and the fish and the sea. Uh, all of these things. And the day of the Lord is also mentioned in, uh, or the day of God's wrath. I'm, I'm, uh, the wrath of God is mentioned in Romans. It's mentioned in Ephesians. It's mentioned in Colossians. It's mentioned in Revelation. The wrath of God. Uh, the day of the Lord is going to be the wrath of God poured out. But the day of the Lord is a repeating fulfillment with a final fulfillment. Does that make sense? It's a repeating fulfillment with a final fulfillment. So it's building in strength. And all these other judgments are harbingers of the final judgment to come. They're not just harbingers. I mean, obviously, they're, they're weighty in their own matter. This, what he's talking about here in chapter 2 is, is weighty enough. And Israel will find that out later. But as Peter says in verse 12, looking for and hastening uh, the coming of God, if you're ready for the day of the Lord, 
And how, how, how is one ready for the day of the Lord? Well, if you're safely in the Lord through the salvation that is from the Lord, well, it's not a day to be feared. I, I'm not afraid of the day of the Lord. I'm on the Lord's side. How about you? <laughs> I would be afraid of it if I was trying to oppose the Lord, but I know I'm on his side, and it's going to be a glorious day. His saints will even be coming with him on the day of the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord will be the wrath of God poured out on those that have resisted God, but if you're in the Lord, you're with him. You're safe with him. But a person not in the Lord, if they're still refusing, if they're still resisting God, it's going to be a day much like the language that Joel uses in verse 2. Go back to the book of Joel. And if you go back to Joel, notice what he says. Uh, so he says that it's a, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. That doesn't sound like fun, right? Anyone enjoy trembling? The day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess. Anyone enjoy gloominess? This isn't just, uh, well, dark days don't bother me, but it's a heavy heaviness in the spirit. It's a gloominess in the soul, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong like of whom have never been. So he says, it's going to be this gloom, and it's because wrath is going to be poured out. It's going to be a time of trembling, knees knocking, fainting. Now, numerous scholars and students of the Bible believe that Joel's warning and prophecy from the Lord here, because obviously it's the Lord giving this. Every time prophets spoke, they were speaking the word of the Lord. Uh, And numerous Uh, scholars and students of the Bible do believe that uh, what he's speaking of here is twofold in that he was warning and prophesying of something that was somewhat near-term in a judgment that was near-term for Israel or Judah specifically, because this is the land of Judah that this judgment is coming to, but also referring to the final end times judgment when God is going to judge the whole world, although Israel will be at the epicenter of all that. But I would personally call it multifold, if you want to put it in those terms. Instead of just twofold, multifold, because this day of the Lord, it definitely involves an army that's as ravenous as the swarming locusts, but they were not locusts, they were going to be men prepared for war, and their approach is far more fear-inducing then the locusts, the locusts, the fear comes after they come through. After they come through, then you're like, oh, everything's gone. But on the way in, it's not as fearful, though I don't think I would enjoy a swarm of locusts coming, which was in chapter 1. But they know that locusts generally aren't coming to eat you. They're coming to eat what you have in your garden. Whereas the armies are coming to kill you, to kill people. You know, the people that were horrified on that Saturday when, uh, when Hamas came in, they knew that they were not coming to eat their fruits and vegetables. They would have given them that. They were coming for blood. That's what they did. So it's very fear-inducing. But, but with a multi, this um, multifold, uh, we'll get back to that in one second. He says here in verse 2, uh, it'll be a people great and strong, the like of whom have never been, nor any such after them. Now this, is, this will be true of the final invasion of Israel, but also in the near term. At this point, the near term judgment of Babylon coming against the land of Judah is about 250 years away, 247 to be exact, from this time that we, that we think. I mean, and there's, there's Different opinions, but generally speaking, so if if some of the calculations are right, it's about 250 years from Babylon coming to destroy Judah, the land of Judah, Jerusalem, the city, and the temple as well. Everything will be leveled to the ground. And then slaughtering 
and or enslaving thousands upon thousands, some taken in captivity, some are slaughtered. And I think you'd all agree that when that comes to pass, 586 B.C., that is a dark and horrifying time in Israel's past. Just like the time of Nazi Germany is a dark and horrifying time in Israel's past. I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Israel. It, it, it is sobering, very, I mean, very, it'll kind of kind of cuts deep inside you even just to stand in there. And that's the way that the people that, you know, that came after the captivity would have felt about when Babylon came in and leveled and destroyed and took captive and the temple was destroyed. But the day of God's judgment was coming. I'm talking about the Babylonian army, that was more near term, 250 or so years from that point. But now it has come, and we're looking back 2,600 years back. That's already, that's, when he said this, it had to come. It's 250 years away. Now we're looking back, it already has come. We're 2,600 years later of it already happening. 2,850 or so years from it being prophesied of happening. So I mentioned this being kind of a multifold uh, fulfillment, not just a twofold, which would be Babylon and the day of the Lord, but multifold being that there are other invasions that Israel has endured, could endure. For example, the invasion of Ezekiel 38 of Gog and Magog, they will come as a swarm. It will be fear-inducing. The people will tremble the same way. Now we know God's going to come to their defense. And the armies of the alliance of Ezekiel chapter 38, they're going to come from Russia, they're going to come from Iran, they're going to come from Libya. The nation will be surrounded. And by the way, all those dominoes are lining up right now if you're not watching the news. All these countries are already in agreement, and probably even more so behind closed doors than we could ever imagine. So that has to happen. But that's even different from the final invasion of the Antichrist and his armies that will come to Armageddon, which we call the Battle of Armageddon, and all the armies of the world will descend upon Israel. And that's different from the armies of Gog and Magog because they're actually destroying the mountains of Israel by, by the Lord. God destroys them. That actually turns Israel to God, but then later they still have to be turned to the Messiah. It turns them back because there's, there's a lot of Jewish people today uh, that are very non-religious. I, I, when I was in corporate America, I worked with quite a few I uh, had good Jewish friends that uh, they were atheist or agnostic. I mean, they, they're like, I would joke around with them. I said, you know, Abraham, not once you thinking this way. Like, I told you I'm an atheist or whatever else, you know. And, uh, but this Ezekiel 38 is going to turn the nation to God, but then they still need to be turned to the Son of God. They still have to believe the Messiah has come. So to go from non-religious to religious, but all the way to believing and Jesus the Messiah, that's something that's going to come in the future. Now, obviously, not, this isn't directly what he's speaking of. My point being that Babylon still has to come at this point. Gog and Magog still has yet to happen. And the armies of the Antichrist have yet to happen. So that's three, not just two, multifold. And there may be others that, uh, you know, the alliances that are mentioned in Psalms 83. There's other things that could be, that could also be, uh, you know, and Israel's been surrounded, as you guys know, in the Six-Day War and other times where they were trembling and God's come to their defense. But this particular prophecy by Joel is to get them to the point of repentance. We'll get to that uh, in just a few moments. Let's read verses uh, 3 through 11. Um, so we, we, read verse, we read through verse 5. But let me read it down through verse 11 so we see the context, the overlapping here. Uh, a fire devours before them, verse 3. Uh, behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Uh, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run with a noise like chariots over the mountaintops. They leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. Again, this is just uh, you know, a complete um, draining of any energy based on fear. Uh, they run like mighty men, uh, speaking of the army that's coming. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. 
They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. They, though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for his strong uh, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can endure it? So, an army of man, and we see this throughout the Bible, um, God can take an army of men to bring judgment on other men. Have you ever noticed this in Scripture? He takes an army of men, you're like, well, I would use corrupt men to judge other corrupt men, right? But God does this, where he'll take an army of men to judge other men. And God has done this many times throughout history and numerous times that are, that are recorded in the Scriptures. And he did this to Israel a number of times, where he would use the Philistines or the Edomites or the Babylonians to judge Israel, uh, allowing even armies that were enemies of Israel to defeat and plunder them because Israel would refuse to repent and refuse to worship the God who had created them to be a nation. And he would later, then after God would even use some of these nations to judge Israel, he would later, as you know, judge the very nations that he used to judge Israel. So they would, they would also get judged, but that would be after the fact. So they were used to judge, and then they got judged. And most of those nations don't even exist anymore because they've come and gone. And he used Israel also to judge other nations. He, at times he used Israel to judge nations for their sin and their pride and their idolatry. Remember that, um, again, some of these nations God uses. He raises up Babylon, then he raises Persia up to judge Babylon. And Persia gets judged by Greece. And as I mentioned, God used Israel as well. Israel has been used by the Lord. Sometimes they were walking with the Lord and they were blessed with victory. And they were instruments of, of judgment on the idolatrous nations uh, that refused to repent and that refused to humble themselves before the Lord. And, you know, Joshua or Gideon or David, they were all used and led in this manner to judge nations around them. So God is no respecter of persons. Israel will get judged if they don't repent. Babylon, Persia, Greece, the United States. Rome, it doesn't matter. God doesn't say, well, you know what? You guys are just different. You're, you're, I, I will never judge you. If he judges the apple of his eye, you can better be sure that we will someday have a line in the sand where God says, I've given you chance after chance after chance. Now your very enemies will be the God will use our enemies to be the instrument of judgment. But the Lord, he has unseen armies too. Um, if you look at verse 11, uh, there's two ways of looking at it, and I think they both uh, work in harmony. Uh, on the one hand, verse 11, for the Lord gives voice to his army, uh, his camp is very great. Um, the Lord is using, um, and Ezekiel talks about that Babylon is a sword in God's hand. The Babylon's a sword in God's hand, right? So you're like, well, Babylon's an idolatrous country. How can it be a sword in God's hand? But he chooses to use them as a sword. On, on the one hand, verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army. So Babylon is his army, but I believe, again, this has a dual purpose meaning. I, I, don't believe, I personally don't believe it only applies there, but it does apply there. It does apply that the army God is sending but at the other, on the other hand, we kind of see uh, a foreshadow here in verse 11. It says, the, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. The camp of the Lord is great. And it goes on and says, for strong is the one, mine is capitalized in my Bible, the one who executes his word, for the great day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can endure it? This is, again, a foreshadow to the great coming day of the Lord, and the camp of the Lord's army, it won't be Babylon, it'll be God's army, literally God's army, and 
we know that God has an unseen army that we don't see, an invisible army of angels. He can deploy at any time. You're familiar, some of you, uh, with in 2 Kings 6, verse 7, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see the young man who had lacked faith that he thought they were going to be uh, killed. And said, the Lord, open the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So God has an army of angels that have protected the saints many, many times. Now, sometimes God has let them come home. Like Stephen, when we see on Sunday, he's going to be stoned to death. God could have saved Stephen. He could have sent one angel. He could have sent anything he chose, but at other times he has used his invisible armies to actually, remember there's times where you've seen uh, the enemies just run and they kill each other in the Old Testament, you're like, they just panic and they, and they are stirred up by the angels of the Lord, angels of God, and so they're defeated by heavenly forces. But someday the unseen army of God's angels are going to be joined by us. All of us that have put our faith in God. All of us that have faith in Jesus. And you can't help but see the camp of the Lord here led by the one. Who is the one? It's the Messiah. It's a, it, it, it is speaking of the Baptist, but it's, but it's a foreshadow of God's greater army, the, the camp of the Lord. The one that the, uh, John the Apostle saw with his very own eyes. And I have it up on the screen in Revelation chapter 19, verses 14 through 16. And the armies in heaven. Most people don't think about, and when you meet unsaved people, they would not think that God has armies in heaven. They just think, well, I've heard, you know, I think there's angels with wings and they have harps. And they're kind of fat and dumpy and, you know, they, they got rosy cheeks and all this other stuff. That's not what they look like. That's a Valentine's Day, you know, uh, uh, I don't know caricature or something of that, but... They don't look at all like that. Leonardo da Vinci and all of them, they came up with some very odd-looking angels. But there is the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, he doesn't really mention the angels here, but we know that the angels are part of the armies of heaven, but the fine linen is us. White and clean, followed him on white horses. I've only rode a horse twice in my life. Once ended badly. Once was boring, uh, but, um, but I'll get a white horse and so will you if you know the Lord. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. And he has put, and he has a robe on, and on his right thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is speaking of when God is going to finally now it's time, and Jesus is going to return. He's going to strike the nations. He's going to smite them with the sword of his mouth, and the blood will be up to the bridle of the horses as the nations themselves gather there, thinking that they can take on God. But they also hate Israel at the same time. They're coming to destroy Israel. They'll destroy the very temple that was rebuilt during that time because a greater temple is coming with the millennium reign of Christ. Let's look at the last handful of verses for this evening, verses 12 through 17. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me. So he moves from the coming judgment and Joel turns his attention to the heart of the people. So this is what's coming, but this is what you need to know and do. It's one thing to know what's coming. How do you want us to respond? Do you want us to build uh, better weapons? Do you want us to you know, fortify the walls? Do you want us to, you know, get a bunch of chariots together? Notice that's none of that is said here in our country. Does that mean we should spend another trillion that we don't have and build, you know, even more weapons and have Lockheed Martin and everyone spin it up as much as they possibly can and then we know we'll be safe? Not what he says. He says, now therefore, says the Lord, verse 12, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and, great, and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion, second trumpet here. Consecrate, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bridegroom from her dressing room. Let the priest who ministered the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O God, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Joel is pleading here with his brethren. He's now said, all right, you, I've told you what's coming, not only the near term, but he's not really talking to them about the end times. He's talking to us in this time so we can kind of see the end of fulfillment. But in that time he was talking, you got the near term coming of judgment, and Joel is pleading with his brethren, given what God he's basically given what God intends to send upon Judah for Judah's sin, for Judah's idolatry, for Judah's pride, for their disinterest in God. Ah, we've got better things to do than worship God. Joel is saying that at this point, it's not too late to be spared of it all. Isn't that great news? He's like, this is coming, but it's not too late. For God to halt what he said he's going to bring upon you. That's my prayer for our country. Uh, we're, we're, we are the runaway freight train where the bridge is out, right? We are the, the proverbial runaway freight, and we are headed. The bridge has been out for a long time, and no one seems to know the bridge is out. We know the bridge is out. You know the bridge is out. I know the, if you know the Lord, you know the bridge is out. You, you know we're hurtling fast towards it. We've got godless people leading our country that have no idea. Now we pray for them. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. But So he says, now therefore, the time to repent is now. It's today. Today. Tomorrow might be too late. But today's not too late. God's still giving us mercy. Today's not too late. But we can't guarantee that tomorrow. But the repentance, it has to be authentic. You know, post 9-11, everybody ran back to church for six weeks. And they realized, all right, the market's going to rebound. You know, New York's going to get back on its feet. They're going to build a better tower. All that good stuff. But the repentance has to be authentic. It has to be genuine. He says, turn to me with all your heart with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. It has to be more than outward. William McDonald said it's not too late to return to him, but it must be more than an outward ritual. God's not asking people to grab the rosary beads. He's not asking people to put out a prayer mat. Not asking, he's asking people at their heart to cry out to the Lord. Has to be, has to be at the heart. God's looking at the heart. There has to be genuine contrition. There's people that are very religious that do all kinds of exercises, but they have no relationship with God. Would you, you've met people like that. I've met people like that. They're they're religious, but they have no relationship because there's never been a work of repentance in them, and and they can actually have a bunch of sin in their life that doesn't bother them at all. Because that's completely compatible with their religious exercise. I can do this, which allows me to do this. It's almost like a license to do this. There's a lot of that in religions around the world. But there has to be contrition, has to be sorrow over sin, has to be a real desire to follow the Lord. And by the way, if you desire to follow the Lord, God will help you follow him. But if you don't desire it, he won't help you follow him. You have to really desire it. Say, how do I know? Well, you'll know. You'll know when you say, Lord, I am giving you my life. Because I had prayed prayers before I finally got saved in 1995. It was totally different when I said, Lord, I belong to you now. Everything changed. Repeating a prayer can't do anything if there's no heart and desire to be changed. Because God, I, I cannot change myself, nor can you. We're not, we're not saying, hey, change yourself. We're saying, throw your, Jesus said, whoever falls upon this rock will be broken. Whoever the rock falls upon they'll be crushed into powder. So the way you can be changed, so you fall upon the rock of the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and 
he ends up doing the changing in us that we could not do ourselves. But we desire it, and he sees that desire as genuine, and that's what faith is, the faith, the mustard seed of faith. And he says to rend your hearts, to agree with God, say, Lord, this is grievous. I, I kind of belittle, I kind of act like it was no big deal, and it is a big deal that there's idolatry here, there's resistance to you. And the nature of God in verse 13, so he goes on to say, Return, Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. The nature of God is to relent. I mean, the world, if you talk to anybody and say, Well, there's only one way to heaven, it's Jesus, they get very incensed. They say, What kind of God would do this? And why would he create the lake of fire? And why is there a hell? And all these other things. But you know, his nature is to relent. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, they basically want to write a description of God, say, God, this is what I want you to be. God's like, that's not who I am. I am holy just as much as I am truth, just as much as I am love. But he has a desire to relent. The nature of God, the heart of God, is to relent. It's to forgive the unforgivable. You know, some of the, some of the crimes that people have committed down through time, we, you know, obviously we saw some of those last Saturday, but they're not the only people that have committed heinous crimes. We have heinous crimes committed in America like every day of the week. And I personally would have a hard time forgiving some of the crimes that have happened. My, my brother and I, one of our sisters was murdered. We know what it's like to deal with this kind of... So, but God forgives the unforgivable, doesn't he? He forgives the unforgivable. He has mercy on people that we would never have mercy on. He, he will forgive the previously prideful or violent or foolish, or sexually immoral. He'll forgive all those things if they're willing to come. That God, I'm sorry, please change me. In Nehemiah verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 17, it says, But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. There's, there's all kinds of passages that tell us that the nature of God is a forgiving God. And you know, when we talk to people about sin in this country, they're like, don't judge me. So I'm not judging you. I'm showing you the fire escape. I don't want to see the fire escape. I want to see you out of my face immediately. I was like, I'm not in your face. I'm far away from you. I'm, I'm up in a pulpit. You know, it doesn't matter where I'm at. I get the same response. Not from everybody. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of people that are willing to dialogue, say, well, let me understand that. But there's a lot of times just immediate, like, don't judge me. I'm no worse than anybody else. That's the problem. We're all worse. <laughs> That's it. You're, you're right in that sense. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God is so unlike us, we're not naturally forgiving. We have to be changed from the inside. And then we're able to forgive. We're able to forgive people because God's forgiven us. It's, it's something that me and my wife learned after salvation. That we, we were able to say, hey, you know what? God forgave us. We've got to forgive people when they harm us. And thankfully, usually they're not big, big things. Every now and then they are. They're usually small things. But he can make us more like him, can't he? He makes us more like him. He can make us more like him slowly but surely. That's a process that I've been going through for close to 30 years. It's the ongoing work of sanctification. You have salvation, sanctification, and future you have glorification, right? That, the sanctification, if you've been saved, you've been born, that's what you're going through right now. That's why you struggle with sometimes you have an internal battle with Lord, I'm trying to become like you. My flesh is still there. That's the work of sanctification. There's the future work of glorification. And he goes on in verse 14. Who knows if he will turn and relent? Of course, God knows. And leave a blessing behind him. I believe that uh, almost everybody that has studied this believes this, that God actually did turn and relent here. You're actually reading what could happen and did happen. I believe that God did turn and relent and there was a change in Judah. And it was reflected in their next king and it appears that um, that repentance took place in the people as well. Um, if you're note taking, the next 40 years was, reign, was under the reign of King Joash and that began just after this appeal by Joel. And so the next 40 years 
Joash was a godly king, and it appears that the people did turn back to the Lord. It's interesting, 40 years. Maybe they had 40 years in the wilderness, right? And then here they have 40 years of following the Lord, and the blessing of God came upon them, and, and there was no Babylon. It was pushed off. Now, it is possible, one of the things that we do as believers, as we pray for repentance, we at least can stay the judgment of God, even if we don't change the nation at the moment. Does that make sense? So you can be those who stand in the gap. Say, you know, you guys might hate us, the, the, the people that like want everything to be as evil as possible. So you might think, you prudes, I can't wait till you're out of here. Say, so, you no, know, we're called the salt. And the salt preserves. Be glad we're here. I mean, like in California, I am glad that uh, there are, you know, men like, you know, David Jeremiah out there and Jack Hibbs and John MacArthur. And you've got, they're at least teaching the word. And so those, those and, the, and the people that are serving the Lord out there, uh, they are the salt that's preserving things from going completely off the rails. And I, we have plenty of that anyway. But ultimately, not just standing in the gap, but everyone repenting is what we pray for. So we pray that you know, every Sunday we get on our knees and we're, we're not just praying to be praying. We really would love to see a real work of repentance. But if that weren't to happen, at least we can be those who stand in the gap and can be the light in the darkness. And God still could stay judgment on behalf of the remnant. And that has happened many times in, in history where God's kind of protected and held off just because of the remnant itself. But here, we don't believe it, it was just a remnant. We believe there really was a national repentance for, for about 40 years. It looks like uh, the people did turn back to the Lord. Now in verse 15, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. Um, call the, uh, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, and the bride, let the bridegroom not go out from... Uh, his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach. Why should the nations rule over them? Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? We see in these last few verses, we kind of bring this evening to a close, we see the urgency of what the Lord requires in Joel's plea to the people. And, and it, as I mentioned, it does appear that they heeded all that was said by the prophet, and they, in fact, did these things. Um, by the way, the fact that the land, remember when he starts talking to the people in chapter 1, the fact that the land had already been fully devastated by locust, by drought, and by famine was no doubt instrumental in convincing the people that if God allowed that judgment to come, he was serious about this other judgment that Joel was telling about. So you can you picture this in America. Imagine if all of our grocery stores were completely empty because God sent a swarm of locusts and ate every single thing there was to be eaten. And then I get up in the pulpit and other pastors say, he did that. He could also bring worse. Are we gonna? Now, some people are, are, like in the book of Revelation, they shake their fist at God at that point and say, bring it on. We will not repent. But at this time, they came to their sense. They're like, oh, you know what? We, we have pretty much been decimated. And what he's saying is a different army's coming that's worse than the locusts. It got their attention. God has ways of getting our attention. Amen? And he does this in small ways in our life. Not, some, not so small sometimes. Sometimes he gives us a swift reminder. Right? And it gets our attention. We're like, you know what? I, I think I should take this serious. So I don't think in any way, shape, or form that what took place in chapter 1 is irrelevant here. It, it absolutely was eye-opening to the people that God had all the power and had all the authority and had all the right to send a greater judgment than the one they were already enduring, but he also could reverse the one they were enduring, right? He can cause everything to rebloom again. Notice that it says, which is cool, when Babylon comes, remember, the land is now barren, but it says that when, when this army comes, the land will be like the Garden of Eden. So it actually reblooms over the next 40 years, and more than that. Remember, it's 247 years until Babylon's going to come. All of it grows back, and as lush as it ever did before, it looks like the Garden of Eden when Babylon comes. So they do get the restoration of things. So if, in our country, if we saw repentance, God would not only 
stop judgment from coming, but it would heal things that are currently broken. Many relationships, many families. Isn't that great to know? It's not just that judgment doesn't come. Something better is replacing the current, because we're in a malaise in a, as a country right now. All kinds of people with all kinds of issues that have no peace. But the call here that is heeded by the people, it's not only urgent, it's specific. It's very specific. Consecrated fast, sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, the priests are involved, get everybody. It's specific, but it's also for everyone. The trumpet in this case is not like the trumpet in verse 1. The trumpet in verse 1 was a trumpet of warning. The trumpet here is a trumpet of gathering. We're going to have a trumpet of gathering too, folks, aren't we? In the clouds. That trumpet is not warning. The only ones that will hear it are saved people. (laughs) The unsaved people will never hear the trumpet. That trumpet will be a gathering in the clouds. So we have a trumpet of gatherings coming. But here uh, the prophet says, I want you to consecrate a fast. I want you to gather a sacred assembly. I want you to gather everybody and anybody, no matter what they're doing. Even if it's their wedding day, they need to stop and run to this assembly. But we're supposed to get married. He's like, it, all plans are off. But our kids have soccer this weekend. All plans are off. That would be impossible for Americans. They would tell God, have you seen my schedule? I can't cancel this. God's like, I'm going to cancel it. Either you cancel it or I'm canceling it. Right? That day's going to come. One way or another. So everybody was supposed to stop whatever they were doing they had big plans. Weddings had to be postponed. Can you imagine this? This is, a, this, is a, this is a tall order. And everybody had to say, we agree. And they did. And that's why they saw 40 years. I don't think we have ever seen remotely any kind of response, even in the church in America, much less the whole nation of the people. But it was all the, the priests, they were supposed to weep between the altar and the porch. They were supposed to intercede Repentance is always personal. You know, every person has to repent. I mean, someone else can't repent for you. Well, they're all repenting, so I'm under it. No, repentance is personal. Each person has to come to, them, come to God by themselves. But uh, when it is personal, and everyone has the personal, you have this collective attitude of all the people at the same time. I love the prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18, 13. Jesus actually uh, points to him, and he says, and the tax collector is standing afar off, and with so much not even lift up his eyes to heaven, says, Beat his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But here we're seeing thousands of Israel people, the Hebrew people at this time, the nation of the people there in Judah, all at the same time with a similar prayer, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cancel their plans, cancel whatever was on the calendar, run to the temple. The priests are weeping between the altar. And the priest of that day and the pastors of this day, 2023, let me kind of take it to our contemporary time, We're called to intercede for the people and with the people. That's why we get on our knees on Sundays. Before and with. That's why we pray tonight. For and with. And we're going to be doing that just so you know. We actually have, we're going to have a sacred assembly out there in the field on Wednesday, November 1st. Uh, And it is three days before there's a time change. So we'll get out there at 6.30 while there's still light. And we're just going to there's not going to be a service in here tonight. There's not going to be child care. Did you notice what it says? It says, gather the children, nursing babies. It was specific. It said it didn't matter what age they were. They weren't supposed to be in the nursery. Everyone was supposed to gather at the same place. And so we're just going to do it next, not next Wednesday. Next Wednesday we have the fall festival. We'll reach out to the community. The following Wednesday, if they come back, they can meet us outside again. But we'll be out in the field, and we're just going to have a little time of prayer. It's not going to be long, but it's going to be long enough before the sun goes down, so maybe 30, 40 minutes. And um, we're also going to be in the process of getting, it kind of works really good, because we're also getting our modulars painted that week, and so there'll probably be tarps over them and everything, so we couldn't have children finish. That's what the Lord, and I saw this passage, and I realized we had these conflicts, because we were talking about canceling it. The Lord said, don't cancel the service, do this instead. So that's what we're going to do. If it's raining that night, bring an umbrella. You know, it's just uh, somehow, some way, uh, somehow, I mean, when I look at, sometimes I'm like, God, if you just say do it, why don't we just do it? And not to not worry about how it's going to work out. 
as we come to a close here, you know, we, we need to hear his voice daily. Uh, the people heard the prophet's voice. They heard his voice. And when we hear his voice, we need to say, Lord, we're going to live our lives in service to you. And mean it. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you again tonight. We thank you for the truth of your word, the clarity of your word, the warning of your word. We thank you that you're a God that's gracious and you relent. We thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that we're not appointed to wrath, but, Lord, that the day of the Lord is not a fearful thing for us because we are hidden in you, not hiding from you. And, Lord, for those that don't even have the sense to hide from you, Lord, I pray that you'd open their eyes. They're still in darkness. They're not aware that uh, the bridge is out ahead. Our country's not aware of it, and the nations of the world are not aware of it. They're careening towards the tribulation period. They're careening towards the end of their own life. And, Lord, we pray that uh, you would raise up Joel's in 2023 and beyond that would speak the truth and speak it in love. And, Lord, uh, we pray that we would be those that hear your voice and give our lives in full surrender to you. Not perfect, but, Lord, you just continue to perfect us. And, Lord, we do pray that uh, we'd be those that would stand in the gap. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would spare uh, what's deserved for ourselves and, and our country. And Lord, we ask again that uh, you would open the eyes of those that are in Israel, that they would see their Messiah and the nations around the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Please sign up and help next Wednesday if you're able to help us. And then the following Wednesday, again, we'll be out in the field for just a bit tonight. Yeah, that night. So God bless you. Have a good night.